I refused to get on any Zoom call in the last two weeks. My wife does it with some of her girlfriends. They'll do like a, you know, the ha- they did a couple happy hour Zooms together, and it's basically like six of them all screaming at each other at the same time. This is Food at a Radio, is all dressed up and has no place to go. When I think of what kind of restaurant I love and want to champion, small, welcoming, devoted to doing a few things in a specific area very well, two of the first candidates to spring to mind would be the Spanish-leaning restaurants MFK and Barbasque, both owned and run by the couple Scott and Sari Worsham. They're also perfect examples of the part of our local food culture that is most at risk in the coronavirus shutdown. MFK closed immediately, while Barbasquet has reconfigured as Bodega Biscay, offering staples and some cooked items to their West Town neighborhood. I spoke to Scott Worsham last week about how his experience as a restaurateur in the coronavirus emergency has been, and it's a less cheery interview than the first few episodes with food writers hunkering at home have been. And that was even before we saw how the first round of government help went to everybody but the small owners it was supposed to help. But this conversation is the kind of thing we need to hear if we're going to fight to help our independent restaurants survive. First, please subscribe to Food or to Radio at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Now here's my conversation with Scott Worsham. What are you up to? I'll bet you're busier than ever. Well, not on anything resembling work, really. Uh, I, I'm baking a lot and uh, cooking with the, with the kids. You're one of the home baking squad. I am. I actually have bread in the oven right now. Um, wow. And uh, cooking a lot with the kids, trying to teach them to cook. I figure the only you know, profitable use of this time, if we're all just stuck together, is uh, let's cook together and teach the kids how to how to feed themselves as opposed to letting Wendy's do it. So that's a great idea. You know, it's, uh, I, I think about this a lot lately now that I'm older and my parents are older, um, all the things that my dad and my grandfather, you know, that taught me when I was young and I had no interest in that, like how to work on a car engine or change a tire or chop wood or whatever it was. I had no interest in that when I was eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. And now I'm like, wow, nobody teaches that stuff to anybody. And it's invaluable stuff. Like learning how to bake bread is invaluable. Yeah. Whoever takes the time to teach their kids any of that stuff anymore. It's all computer screens or after school activities, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the great thing is that you can start teaching them. And then when you hit a problem, you can find the answer online now. So if you're willing to make use of it, it's the best of all possible worlds, but you have to actually want to do it. Well, you know, you're probably pretty close to my age, so I, I don't know what your parents were like, but my, I came from people who were like, no, this is the way. We've always done it this way. <laughs> of course, there was only one internal combustion engine back then. Now there are, you know, yeah. it was a much simpler place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. My my grandfather was the kind of guy who would call an electrician to change a light bulb, so they weren't exactly. <laughs> oh, no, my dad would have been on that. 
on that electrical problem in a yeah. heartbeat. I always think of that generation in terms of what someone said about uh, how the different armies worked in World War II. If a Russian Jeep broke down or whatever they used, uh, a Russian truck broke down, there'd be 10 guys standing in front of it waiting for the truck repairman to come. And if an American truck broke down, there'd be 10 guys standing in front of it with the hood open, yelling at each other the right way to do it. <laughs> and result the same? Probably. But, you know, at least you got to admire the, the not waiting for, for authority to solve everything for you, which seems strangely topical at the moment. Has, this, has authority yeah. solved everything for you? Nice segue, Michael. <laughs> I'm impressed with your acumen here. You've been doing this for a while, though. Um, no, no, they have not. We have been jumping through all the hoops and dealing with our our banker, and uh, they've promised us uh, some sort of resolve to this uh, soon. But I don't think anybody's gotten a check for the PPE loans. I, and if you are going for the PPE loan, I'm sorry, the PPP loan. PPE is different. Right. Um, uh, the PPP loan, you can only get that if you're getting that. You can't apply for any other loans. So, or something like that. I, it's, I, I, I said in the beginning, and I still hold this to be true, although I'm getting a little more hopeful as the days go by, that there might be some help for us. But waiting for the federal government to help you in America has always been a a foolish idea, right? <laughs> yeah. The guy is never coming to fix your Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> you got to fix your own Jeep, man. Yeah, they're just coming to shoot you by the side of the road. Um, yeah. What? Uh, well, yeah. Tell me how the. You know, I, I've been talking to people, other food writers for this podcast, and we've all been sort of cheerful because we're just at home baking and and getting comfy. You know, not putting on pants till four o'clock. And the, uh, I, I just, yeah, it feels like time to talk to someone in the actual restaurant business. So tell me, you know, like how it, how it happened when you knew that you were going to have to shut down and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I guess we all knew something was coming down the pipe, but nobody really knew because it all was changing so quickly. I mean, like every two or three hours, there's a different bit of news coming out. And so, Obviously, we were trying to track it like everybody else in this business, but there was no notice when they shut us down completely on that Sunday. As a matter of fact, we didn't know until after we shut down that we could have stayed open until Monday right. at 8 o'clock or whatever it was. But it, it doesn't matter. We were closed on Mondays anyway. But um, they just kind of threw us to the lions here with no no hand at all or no guidelines or... So everyone was left to fend for themselves, obviously. Everyone was thrown out of work. It it's, was heartbreaking to have to tell all your team members that, oh, by the way, guys, you don't have a job as of today. You know, one of my biggest peeves in this business is when people close their doors immediately without telling their staff that they're out of, out of work. I get why people do it, but I've never liked it. And I've always thought it was kind of on you as the, as the operator or owner to take it in the teeth um, and let your, you know, do the right thing for your people. But this was forced on us and we had no choice. So we kind of just scrambled for about 
24 hours. I think we had a meeting that day, that Sunday, with the management team at Biscay. And uh, Neil, our, Neil Newman, our general manager, said, hey, you know, um, Middlebrow, Bungalow, Middlebrow, whatever that place is called, uh, the bakery is doing um, like a grocery store thing. And so we immediately were like, oh, that's a great pivot. We'll, we'll need that. Like we'll all need to get groceries instead of having to go to Mariano's or Aldi's or wherever and fight the crowds. And our neighbors will and our regulars will. So let's just do that. And then it just kind of evolved from there. We just kind of, we built the web portion of it out in like two, three days. Um, and basically reinvented a whole new business model in like three days. Um, and we thought, it was one thing I had been thinking about anyway, because when I lived in New York City, your local bodega was like where you went for everything. You never, you didn't go to a big supermarket. You would just stop at the bodega on your way home from work and picked up whatever you needed. Um, but we don't have that culture here in Chicago, nor do we really have bodegas very much. And um, so we're all kind of forced to go to these bigger places. And we just thought, oh, the bodega, that would be the way to go here. And it just kind of built from there. And we just keep adding more and more stuff every day, every week. I was joking up until three or four days ago. The only thing we're missing is toiletries and toothpaste and soap. And now we have that. <laughs> so by the end of this, I don't think Barbiscay is going to exist in its what it was before. I think the bodega part is going to be a permanent fixture. I mean, it might be too soon to know exactly what's happening, but or if we even make it out at the end of this, who knows how long this is going to last. But um, I think we're going to be bodega from now on. I'm pretty sure. So what, uh, I mean, I guess it's partly, I was trying to think if there's a grocery store around where uh, Biscay is. Not really, not close by. No, the closest one would be Mariano's down Chicago Avenue past Damon which if you're on public transport, which you don't want to use, or on foot, that's a fairly decent hike to go get groceries. And you just never know when you go there. Like we've obviously had to go there once or twice, or Siri has, I'm not allowed out of the house because of my asthma. Um, that sometimes it's empty and sometimes it's full of people all walking around coughing on each other. So, you know, I don't know. Some people are doing proper distancing. Some people are not. Um, and it's just, you know, you don't want to take any chances, right? Right. How's it set up in your former restaurant there? Uh, basically we turned it into, into a production line. We just have a small handful. At first we thought we'd do more prepared meals, like to-go foods. And then we found out the groceries were selling more than the prepared meals. So we've, we've just really tore down the prepared meals menu to just like maybe four or five items and they're all just comfort food like chicken and dumplings and a hamburger and stuff like that and then the grocery system is set up like a production line where we moved everything upstairs that was in storage all the liquor and wine and all the dry goods and um and we basically just go down the row and pack up people's bags and boxes of stuff and hand it to them at the door or we deliver it to them. So that's like, it's like a 1910 grocery store and you're the, 
you know, Mr. Drucker uh, handing stuff off to people. Exactly, exactly right. And that was one of the things that I was like, hey, let's be, do we need to get some grabbers? Like, what do we need here? We don't have any shelves, but uh, yeah, that was the idea basically was when people would just say, here's what I need. And then you would put their order together and hand it to them and they would walk away, which was like, if he comes in the room, we probably have the cleanest workspace of, or even compared to some people's houses, I think we have the cleanest room in town because that crew is adamant about making sure everything is, is sparkling clean at all times. So, but you know, we went through our growing pain, like, do we close? Do we keep going on? And, you know, we, we had some internal, uh, pretty intense discussions about it and, um, eventually decided to keep going as long as we felt like we could all be safe about it because no, it's not, none of this is worth a life especially of somebody that we, or any, anybody, it doesn't matter who it is, but especially somebody we, we love and work with, that would be, I would never, that'd be something that we would never bounce back from. I, I would, I would shut down everything in the place of the ground probably. So when you made that decision, was it, I mean, did you run the numbers or was it just kind of an instinctive, what the hell else are we going to do? We might as well be helpful in some way. Uh, it was pretty instinctive, I think. Um, we knew that if we shut down, there was a good chance we may not reopen because how do you, you have to have some sort of cash flow. Um, and we didn't want to, you know, if we lost our management team, and who knows where somebody's going to be in six months? You know, it, it's really, you can fire, you can find another bartender or another, you know, uh, wait staff person. Um, not, not anybody, anybody who's great, you still want to obviously keep, but it's much, much harder to find like a great GM or a great chef or, you know, so we really wanted to keep our management team in place at all costs. Um, and then we just figured we had to make this work because the only way we could keep paying them is to, to make it happen. Also, my wife is a Trotter person. Sari worked with Trotter for like 13 years. So, uh, and I don't know if you know much about Trotter um, soldiers. They are basically, no is not in their vocabulary. There, there was no losing, there was no giving up. There is no retreat. There is, you know, solve the problem and move forward at all costs. Even if it's not a good idea, it doesn't <laughs> matter. <laughs> the point is never give up. Right. Tell, yeah, tell me about, like, how you decided on what food to make and things like that. Well, one of the reasons we never really did to go food before was because our menu is kind of I don't know, uh, delicate, I guess you could say. It doesn't hold up to travel and it's something you kind of have to eat immediately for it to taste right. So when we did this, we we're like, well, we obviously have to have something that it can travel. And that, and what, what do people really want? They want comfort food right now. They want things that are a little carby, a little cheesy, a little proteiny, you know, something heartwarming, makes you feel better, not so foo-foo. Um, so Sari's had in her back pocket her chicken and dumpling recipe that she uses uh, just here at home. We started doing that. Um, her infamous cookies. 
I said, if we're going to be a bodega, we got to have an egg, ham, and cheese on a roll. That is a, a New York thing that's associated with bodegas, and again, not something that people in Chicago particularly know. Yeah, I have a couple of friends who spend time in New York or Chicago, and they're like, dude, egg, ham, and cheese on a roll. And I'm like, yeah, you got to have it. I keep joking that all we're missing are Twizzlers and Wednesdays. <laughs> you, know you know what Wednesdays are? No, what? Uh, some people call them Lucy's. Um, they're basically single cigarettes for, uh, in a cup on the counter at the okay. bodega, and you can just one one cigarette for a buck. Yeah. You have uh, phone, you have totally phone cards? No, we don't. No phone cards. We probably should get some tarjetas in there. What are people talking about? Do you talk to other people who have restaurants? Um, I have been talking to a few people. Um, I've had some people trying to get me to write things. Um, about the retail pivot that we did. But I don't know that I have any answers because of, you know, the information that we get changes so much from day to day that I feel like anything I would say about it would immediately be out of date within like 24 hours. Right. Also, I know that this is a complete luxury that my wife and I have right now, but just being able to like spend a few weeks alone together in the house is like something that we haven't been able to do since we first met. Like we, before I moved back from DC to live with her in Chicago, we took a month off from work um, because we both had a lot of vacation time saved up and we went to France for 30 days. And that was the last time we were able to do that. So, I mean, obviously, this is much more stressful and anxiety-ridden and, and, and all that um, and a lot of fear and stuff that wasn't there. But just the time, you forget, I think, those of us who are old enough to remember the world before the internet and before cell phones, I know it sounds like a very old man thing to say, but it is true. The world was a little slower and it wasn't so rapid fire. And I think people are, if they're lucky enough, to be in a position right now where they've just been forced to slow down and no one around them is dying horribly or their businesses are crumbling, then I think a lot of people are starting to realize, oh, wait, our world does move at this crazy breakneck speed that is not good for us. And I hope some good comes out of this. I hope we don't come out of this and just go right back to whatever normal is the business world wants us to get to you know, of constantly consuming and being on the treadmill, I think that would be a, a real shame. Um, but who knows? We're maybe we're so broken that there's no repairing it. But but this does feel somewhat like a once in a lifetime opportunity to change some things that really need to be changed. Like what? Well, our social net, our safety net for for how how we treat people. Uh, who who are not fortunate to have money or good jobs or good, you know, being born in the right place at the right time to the right people, anybody poor of color. I mean, this country still has some crazy, crazy issues that should have been resolved by now. I mean, the fact that race is so, we're still demonizing people of any color is, no one's throwing up a wall between us and Canada, you know? It's kind of ridiculous that it's 2020 and we're still demonizing people for the color of their skin. That seems outrageous to me. And I know we're not the only country that does that. I know 
it's inherent in the human animal to suspect and fear the other. But like you mentioned earlier, we do have the internet. We can look things up. You know, we're not all living in this dark cave of no knowledge. I, I don't know if that's going to happen. You know, the people with their hands on the wheels of power don't usually like to give them up without some sort of blood being spilled, but at least historically speaking. Like you meet these people sometimes who are like, oh, America is going to be around forever. It's like, do you know anything about history? Right. Like there's been no empire ever that has lasted forever. Ever, ever, ever. I mean, how long did the Roman Empire last? A few thousand years? Not like, even. We're not yeah. going to make it. We're not going to even make it to like 500 years. What what is this revealed to you about the restaurant industry that that you think could be changed? Well, I don't know if there's any great quick solutions to it. I mean, obviously, this is going to kill a lot of people's restaurants and and dreams. And who knows who can come out the other side side of this? Whether it's you know, is this the end of mom and pop restaurants? Is this the end of big, huge conglomerate restaurants? I No one knows yet. But we did obviously reach a point where we were so oversaturated with restaurants. We had way more restaurants than, than any city could support. And I think it wasn't just obviously Chicago. I think it was nationwide. It could be worldwide. I don't know. But I know it was nationwide. Anybody I talked to from other cities was like, yeah, we have too many restaurants. We were all struggling for the same diner and then with the media the way that's gone in the last 10 15 years of you know hot lists everyone just goes out to the next new hot restaurant so they can say that they've been there and then every month there's a new hot list to go to so the fact that some place like Le Bouchon survived the transition from the death of Jean-Claude and then and then Susan to probably be and I, I can't speak for certain, but they seem busier than ever in the last couple of years. That was very heartening that a lot of people went out of their way, us and Sari and I included, to support them after Jean-Claude passed. You know, we everybody succumbs to that. Well, have you been to the new hot thing? Well, that was an opportunity that you could have used to go to one of your favorite places and keep them in business. But it's always the, the new hot thing. And that's what drives all media is driven by eyeballs and clicks right so if you don't have the new hot thing you don't have people going to your website then it just seems like a weird a weird vortex of suck that we were all stuck in i don't know that any of that's going to change on the other side of this but well that's what i wonder i think about okay so people need to pay more for food so restaurants can pay more to the people who work there but that means people assuming that people's amount that they're willing to spend on food is relatively static, then they will spend more money per place at fewer places. So that will kill off places that don't have as high appeal and get as much traffic. And maybe that's just a needed shakeout. Although I sure don't want to say to anyone in particular, yeah, we don't really need your restaurant. Um, but that could happen. And honestly, I feel like 
part of the reason we have so many restaurants is that it's been hard for a restaurant to die in recent years. Just as someone who covers it may not seem that way to restaurateurs, but to me, a lot of places hung on a lot longer than it seemed like they should be hanging on. Um, in terms of what? In terms of like their service level or food level or just. Well, it's just, you know, just being sure. old and tired. Or just never having worked in the first place, and yet there they are on Randolph Street forever and ever. And I suppose they're just, it's just because you can keep going on your 10 year lease till 10 years is up. Well, plus Randolph Street is one of those areas now where it has been for a few years that it's just nonstop tourists, right? Right. So it's like having a great view. You don't have to be that good because everyone's coming for the view. And you know, it's not like your business is based on regulars. Yeah. based on footwork. Obviously, we, we're just pontificating here, right? No one knows. Yes, but no one knows. My guess would be that this uh, forced stay-at-home thing has, again, back to the baking at home thing. It's teaching a lot of people like, oh, wow, I really do like cooking at home. I need to do this more often. And look how much cheaper it is for me to cook at home than it is to go eat in a restaurant. And those of us who own restaurants and work in restaurants know that there's not enough money being made in any restaurant to support people the way we would like to support them. Unless you're a huge company like, you know, I don't know, one off or Boca or um, hog salt that can afford to have an insurance program because you've got a lot of restaurants contributing to that. But people like us, we can't afford insurance and it looks on the outside like we're doing great, but, Internally, we're still struggling every day, every week, every payroll to make ends meet. And even though it's something that we can't imagine doing anything else, at some point, we've had many conversations where we're like, why are we even doing this? It's just, it's so much stress and struggle and strife, and we can't do what we want to do with it. And then you have those things happen. You know, you have a really cool guests or regulars and you're like oh okay not, that reminds me why we do this but it's a lot more stress than than you would think maybe but the the thing of the other side is people are not going to be comfortable going out to restaurants right away it's going to take like however long it takes a year two years and then plus on top of that all the people who have decided you know what i'm just going to cook at home because i really like it and carve out time of my day to do that. So even if we got the all clear, like tomorrow, it'd probably still be six months to a year before we saw any sort of people coming back. And who's, who can make it that far? Yeah. Although I, you know, the question then becomes, okay, so if that's the new situation that we're all facing, how do we make our restaurant work for this new world? What, how do we, be part of people cooking at home. I mean, I could certainly see some of that where I take, I take a piece of it from that place and cook the rest of it at home or people doing meal kits and things like that. And to some degree that's working, although it's also one of those businesses that somebody often opens some fancy expensive thing, Italy being the most recent one. And it never quite lives up to how much, why you just take this home and cook it yourself business they thought they were going to do. 
Yeah, I, you know, I went to the eatery in New York when they first were new. And I was, I think, like many people, just completely blown away by the place. But when they opened the eatery in Chicago, it was not, it didn't feel the same at all to me. It didn't have that sort of like little bit of everything. It was very safe. Like, it feels like when people from other markets come to Chicago, they go, oh, Chicago is meat and potatoes. Right. Or they, they kind of pigeonhole Chicago a little bit and dumb it down. And even some people who open restaurants in Chicago, like, you know, in the last 10 years, there was so five years, there was so much capital investment capital around that there was so much extra money that people just decided, Oh, well, we'll just spend $6 million on this restaurant build out. And then now we now we have a thousand steakhouses or whatever they are. Right. But, but those places are all like taking somebody else's concept dumbing it down for the masses and then maybe or maybe not being successful at it. But it felt like that's what happened in the last five years. Like how many truly passionate restaurants opened in the last five years? That's an actual question I'm asking you. Can you, can you name like three actual passionate restaurants? Sure. Yeah. People who are like, like, my God, this is the thing I've always wanted to do. And I'm going to do this because I have to, not because they thought it would be cool to have a restaurant. Smaller restaurants. I mean, I think that describes lots of places. I think it describes MFK and Barbasque. I think it describes Daisies. I need my food at her night. Well, I was looking for the corporate thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> Here, I'm just, just leafing through the book. John, yeah. And, uh... So, so I guess there are Cafe Dijon. There have been some, but those places aren't getting the kind of love that, like, the newest hog salt or... I'm not shouting them out as like bad restaurants. They have good restaurants. You know, Boca Group, Hog Salt, One Off, Let Us Entertain You. They make good restaurants. Some of them I really love. But at some point, if you have 10, 20 restaurants in your company. Yeah, you're, you're asking, are there 10 or 20 times that you felt so inspired that you had to do that kind of restaurant? And usually not, no. You're filling a niche because you see a niche there and you're professional and you know how to fill a niche well. And I think if, I, if we see anything from the big groups, we're going to see when this ends that they kill some of those kind of marginal concepts, the one where the hotel needed a restaurant and they put a restaurant in the hotel and it never really had an independent existence of its own of its own it might have been executed at a high level but yeah you kind of just don't feel the essentialness of it in a way that believe me if you're you know a a lady of a certain age in lincoln park boca is essential to your life uh the other places may not be quite that same way well plus you rent it in those places in any uh, I mean, it makes it sound like we're just talking about Boca here, but we're not. Any place that is in a high traffic location, whether it's Randolph or Gold Coast or wherever, I, I can, I have some idea from what I've heard about what people pay for rent. And, and it's just an astronomical number to me that I don't know how they could survive coming out of the other side of this when your rent is 60000 80000 $120,000 a month. That's one of the questions that we'll see. I mean, the real estate business makes so much money off the backs of the restaurant industry. 
okay, so they don't get paid their rent, so they foreclose on all these places. Then the restaurants are gone. What's the appeal of living in, you know, the new Sterling Bay condo building if all you can see when you go outside is dead restaurants? There's going to be have to have to be some kind of reckoning in terms of, you know, we we need to make sure we create an environment in which businesses can happen. But I don't know if they think well, that way. That also, if, if you can extrapolate that to the end, then you have to take it all the way back to what you just mentioned: the landlords and the and these developers. They keep building these new shiny new things, and we're losing population in Chicago. Right. Who's even moving into these places? And where are they moving from? They're just moving from other neighborhoods of Chicago. So, you know what I mean? Like new people aren't coming to the city. We have such high taxes on everything. It, it's, it almost is like the city doesn't want you to move here or to start a business here unless you're one of those big deep pocketed companies. Right. And then so, they'll do whatever, whatever they can for you. But like on our level, they don't really give a crap. Right. Um, as far as I can tell. And there's more people than ever with their hands in your pocket as an operator, whether it's your POS system or your delivery company or, you know, whoever this, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten in the last three weeks from companies I've never heard of promising that they can help drive business to us or, for an extra $500 a month or 30% of what they bring us. And it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, one good thing of this, I've seen more people talk about the delivery services, these apps, and I've used them, you know. Um, I've used them as a consumer and as a restaurant owner, but I don't anymore um, just because of the soaking that they give to both sides of, they, they soak the restaurant and they soak the guest just to deliver food. It just seems, now that we're delivering our own stuff, I'm like, this is not that hard. <laughs> they don't deserve they don't deserve 30% of our gross and 20% of the guests and then not even pay the delivery driver on top of all that. And having a website where you can tick off what to order is not one of the more difficult things to do on the internet. And they just built such a structure around it, you know, doing a lot of predatory things like buying up the Google ads for your restaurant's name and things like that. They're not only not providing that much of a service, but what you mentioned earlier is absolutely correct. They're, they are being predatory. Grubhub, for example, has done this to us and to everyone else I know. They built a web page on Grubhub that makes it look like we're selling our menu through Grubhub. And I found out about it and it, it just says this restaurant is not available for orders right now. And they've got our menu on there, and it looks like we are in cahoots with Grubhub. And I had to say, what the hell? You guys need to take this down immediately, or I'm going to have my lawyer talk to you next. And they said, oh, okay. But there have to be hundreds of thousands of restaurants across the country that have no idea that Grubhub is using them to make it look like they're tapped into every restaurant. And I don't know what their end game is here. Do they think that people are just going to cave in because they built them a web page. I don't, I don't understand that thinking, but so if, if anything good comes of this and it's, and it's just that those apps go away, I'll, I'll be very happy. They're evil and they should die. 
I have no answers about any of this, obviously. I'm just a small operator who was dumb enough to open a couple of restaurants because I wanted to see these restaurants live, but they may not make it. But I do know that we're all going to have our own reasons for that. But these bigger companies are going to have the same reasons, I think, which is the high rent, the high labor cost, the higher food cost, the lack of people coming in the door. Like our rent at MFK is, is really nothing. We can, we can hold on there for a little while, I think. But whether it's a viable business in a year, I don't know that. But these people that are paying $100,000 a month rent in Randolph Street area, Fulton Market, what are, you know, what are they going to do? I think a lot of them are going to be gone. I think it's going to hit the bigger people more so or as hard as it hits the smaller people. I don't think this is going to be like, oh, that sector of this business is safe and the rest of us are screwed. I think this is an across the board equal opportunity screwing that we're all getting here. So I don't know what's going to happen. I, but I do think, again, this is an opportunity for all of us to re-examine this business. Like you asked me earlier about changes that we need to make to this business. And there are a lot of them. And will we make them is the question. So what do you see that, that Barbiscay, Bodega Biscay, any idea what you think it would be when the world comes back? We haven't. There's nothing written in stone because we don't know how this, long this is going to go on or how it's going to end, obviously, or what's going to happen after it supposedly, you know, quote unquote ends. But I think we're envisioning keeping the retail aspect of it somehow, like maybe putting a little retail shop in the front of the room uh, near the front window. Kind of like it's not a great word, but the Chicago word for it is slashy. Yeah, you have your. Just in front and the bar in the back. And that's originally what that building of Biscay is in was back in 1953. Um, it was a liquor store in the, in the bar in the back. So we're thinking about going back to that idea of having a little retail shop in the front and then a little bar and small, smaller dining room in the back. And then probably changing our menu to just be a little more simple and straightforward and just really lean more into the neighborhood aspect of it. Like why we were fighting a burger for so long. <laughs> probably, because it, probably because everybody was doing a burger. It was like how we eventually took octopus off of our menu because all of a sudden everywhere you went, octopus was like the kale of proteins. <laughs> like, like every, like places that had no business having octopus on their menu had octopus on their menu. And it's mostly bad. So yeah. we were like, let's get rid of it. It's so weird how octopus came out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed. Was there something that changed in the industry? I mean, was it suddenly easier to get or cheaper or something? Or just was a trend? I don't, I don't think so. I think it just became a hot thing, you know? I mean, chefs, chefs like to be on top of trends as well, you know? And it's a thing that people were buying and eating that seemed like, I don't, I don't know what the word is. It, it seemed like something kind of exotic, but still approachable. And then people embraced it and it became hip. Like how does anything become the hot, the hot right. thing? I don't really know. Yeah. Like kale, one of the most undigestible greens on the planet. 
How did that happen, Michael? I blame Paul Verant because he. Because it's the first, the first place I ever had it that I could remember, you know, anyone calling attention to it. But it was slow cooked with pork, like it was greens in the south, and it was fantastic. Yeah, it was really great that way. It's when you're eating it, it's like this is. I'm eating the decoration around the platter, not the actual platter itself at this point. Yeah, this the salad is trying to hurt me. Why am I eating this? Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guest, Scott Worsham. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And consider leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover it too. Thanks. Thanks.